You're listening to the Digital Health Today podcast, episode 21. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators, and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Health TechX Global. Join key stakeholders from around the world at this year's Health TechX Europe event taking place in London on the 20th of June, 2017. It's a packed day of insights from thought leaders working at the cutting edge of health tech and digital health. Health TechX Europe will explore the current trends and challenges facing global healthcare. See the latest innovations being used to create high impact solutions and better outcomes for patients, practitioners, pharma, and payers. Join us on the 20th of June, 2017. Tickets are available now at healthtechxeurope.com. That's healthtech, the letter X, europe.com. Hello and welcome back to Digital Health Today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall. Thanks for tuning in and being a part of the global digital health community. If you haven't done it yet, please join us officially by subscribing with your email address on our website, digitalhealthtoday.com. And as always, I also really appreciate you taking a few minutes to write a review of the show on iTunes. Your stars and comments go a long way to helping us grow this audience. All you need to do is visit your podcast app and leave us a review. If you need some help, we have some instructions on how to do this on our website, digitalhealthtoday.com support. This is the 21st episode of Digital Health Today, and it has been an exciting journey so far. We've had some great conversations with thought leaders from all around the world, and the content in the episodes to come is continuing to build on our early success. We recently got some more sponsors for the show, so you'll be hearing more about them in the coming episodes, and their interests are aligned with ours, which is to advance the implementation of innovations in the health sector. We've also put more resources into place with new audio engineers trying to help me sound better, and also step up the production quality of the show overall. So it's been a fun ride for these first 21 episodes, and it's clear that we're just getting started. In our first episodes, we've spoken directly to clinicians, industrial designers, software providers, entrepreneurs, and a whole range of people. And while these guests have provided a great look at the range of health issues that can be addressed using digital solutions, there's one major area that's not been addressed. That is, not until this episode. Today, we're going to switch things up a little bit and talk about something that needs much more attention and resources. And that thing is mental health. It's being talked about more and more as we break down the barriers and stigma associated with mental health and mental illness. And to get this conversation started on this program, I went directly to one of the leaders I had the opportunity to meet several times last year. That leader is Dr. Arshia Vahabzada. He's a psychiatrist and instructor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He's also the innovation officer at Massachusetts General Hospital and the chief medical officer of BrainPower, which is a wearables company focused on developing solutions for children and adults with autism. He was raised in England and he moved to the United States to pursue his dream of leveraging clinical neuroscience to improve the treatment of people with brain disorders. He's a graduate of Singularity University and he speaks at conferences all around the world. In fact, I've included a few videos of some of the talks he did at Exponential Medicine in the show notes. Dr. Vahabzada was recognized as a 40 under 40 top innovator in 2015, and he's working to bring exponential transformational change for global mental health. Now, this episode is a bit longer than we normally like to keep each podcast, but I hope you'll agree that everything in here is helpful insight into what is being done and what needs to be done to apply technology and solutions in constructive ways to the area of mental health. Just as I was working to put the final touches on this podcast and release it, some news hit the headlines in the UK about a podcast that Prince Harry did where he spoke about his own personal challenges dealing with the death of his mother. It was a really powerful podcast, and he was very candid about how the approach he took early in his life really impacted his mental state, and how therapy helped him process things and develop a much better mental state. 
It's so key to have respected leaders on the world stage speaking candidly and openly about the importance of mental health, and my hat's off to Prince Harry for having the courage to share that in his interview. Now, that interview is on a brand new podcast, and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I'll include a link to the episode in the show notes. You can find that at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 21. In fact, as always, you can find all the links, videos, articles, and more on the website, so please do head over and check it out at digitalhealthtoday.com slash 21. Now let's tune into the conversation with Dr. Arshia Fahabzada. Arshia, thanks very much for joining me. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Dan. Arshia, I've given the listeners a little bit of background. Can you give us a little bit of insight about your personal journey that's gotten you to where you are today? Sure, uh, absolutely, Dan. So I pretty much grew up in the West Midlands in um, England, where I actually went to medical school at the University of Birmingham. And initially, I actually uh, trained to be a family physician. So I spent um, about four or five years or so um, training under the Royal College of General Practitioners. And I actually uh, completed my training as a family physician there. And then I spent about a year, about a year to 18 months under the Royal College of Psychiatrists, actually doing some introductory uh, psychiatric training before heading on over to the to the States where I studied at Emory and the for my residency in adult psychiatry and then at Mass General and Harvard for my fellowship in child psychiatry. And I you know, currently still have an academic appointment at uh, Harvard Medical School and uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. But I'm kind of all over the place because I'm based on both the East Coast and the West Coast. So I spend a lot of time in California and also Massachusetts at the moment. Well, you're certainly spread between two of the top, I'd say, global cities for technology, innovation, and health. Uh, so this, <laughs> the fact that you're working in between the two of them, it's got to give you great access and exposure to a lot of fantastic uh, technologies and companies and ways of, of uh, learning and teaching and thinking and doing. Listen, we're here to talk about mental health, and this is an area that often gets overlooked just broadly in, in healthcare. However, I have to say, having spent about 20 years, a little over 20 years in the healthcare industry, it seems like in the past two or three years, the issue is coming up a lot more frequently. And I'm really pleased to see that because I know there's a lot of association between mental health and physical health, uh, a lot of correlation between those, those uh, two areas. So let's talk some nuts and bolts first. We're talking about mental health. It's a big term that includes a lot of very different conditions. Can you give me some insight into what conditions we're specifically talking about and what some of the top conditions are in terms of what's most common? Sure, absolutely. So as you mentioned, mental health is a huge and wide spectrum. It covers, um, well, I mean, there's no, there's no kind of preset definition even for mental health. If you think about it, um, some people, when they speak, they talk about mental illness. And even saying mental health actually broadens it much wider. You can even say um, uh, mental wellness in some cases. So in terms of the conditions, the way I think about it is, you know, you on on the very severe side of the spectrum, you have conditions that are called uh, severe mental illnesses, and these conditions are typically those who are that are most impairing to someone's kind of daily function. Um, those people may need more intensive care um, and management, um, may require uh, psychiatric medications or multiple psychiatric medications, and they tend to be things like. Uh, schizophrenia, for example. Some people have um, a bipolar disorder that's uh, a little bit harder to treat, and that would fall under severe mental illness. People who 
have um, you know recurrent suicidal thoughts regardless of diagnosis tend to fall into that category as well and we can generally kind of go down the kind of milder spectrum where we get people uh, sorry i should also mention there's a lot of people who have um, a lot of problems with substance use like drugs and alcohol even though we don't necessarily consider those as severe mental illness as such there's a huge kind of burden of disability um, and life impact on uh, when we think about those people and then in terms of the general population, you know, what's most common, severe mental illness isn't the most common category. The most common category of mental illness, per se, um, are conditions such as anxiety. We have a variety of anxiety disorders, um, generalized anxiety, social phobia, you know, speaking and being in social situations, and also um, some types of uh, depression as well, things like major depression or depressive disorder. And also on the total flip side, we have a lot of um, thoughts about mental wellness in terms of, you know, maintaining good mental health. So there's a lot of people who are interested in healthy eating, health, um, um, having good levels of exercise, meditation, mindfulness. These may be useful for multiple different categories of people, but there's a whole wellness industry that looks at you know, mind, body balance. So in fact, it's huge. You go right from a high functioning executive that wants you know, some mindfulness practices all the way through to somebody who requires almost 24-hour care in a, a state psychiatric hospital, requiring multiple medications, requiring multiple uh, specialists to weigh in, perhaps even unable to manage their own finances, for example. So it's a tremendous spectrum we're talking about. So it really pays to, when we talk about a piece of technology or we talk about digital health uh, in regard to mental illness uh, or mental health, it really pays to identify what subset of people, what subset of conditions we're really focusing on. That's excellent. I've got some questions for that later in the program. But one of the things that I just heard as you were listing out all those different conditions is those are often conditions that we don't want to talk about. They're things that are sort of shunned from society. And it's not something that people will talk about their Parkinson's disease or their congestive heart failure or the stroke that someone had, but they won't often talk about these sorts of issues that you've just identified there. So there's a correlation between the mental health and the physical health. Can you give me some indication about what the cost of mental health and mental illness is uh, in the U.S. or globally, and both in terms of a financial perspective, but, but importantly, from a physical or well-being or, or a lifespan perspective? Absolutely. So I'll start by saying it's uh, huge. But before I kind of narrow down, you mentioned people don't want to talk about it. And I think part of the issue there is that when people are identified as having uh, a mental health issue or having schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, I think that sometimes it's cast as being uh, a moral deficiency. So that person has been seen as having something wrong with them, perhaps being a bad person. People are reluctant to engage. There's a, there's a, there's a moral judgment that's often made. And, you know, when we kind of stand back, do we make that moral judgment of people who have a disorder that affects their pancreas, for example, diabetes? Um, we don't tend to do that. So I think that's part, that's part of the issue that we need to address is that this isn't a moral failing. Someone who has schizophrenia isn't a bad person, but some of those attitudes make people feel that way. And people with mental illness internalize um, how society uh, treats them and judges them. And they may take on board some of those uh, feelings uh, and then may subsequently isolate. So it's important to look at that. In terms of 
the cost of uh, mental illness, first of all, it's it's huge. It's a huge cost in terms of disability in particular. So when we look at um, mental illness in general, it disables us in typically younger ages compared to other categories of non-communicable um, illnesses. So if we look at um, cardiovascular disease, for example, yes, there's a huge burden of disability that's caused by cardiovascular disease, whether it's um, heart failure um, or related to um, heart attacks or whatever it is, myocardial infarction. But the thing is, with mental illness, a lot of that disability is in the younger age group. So when we look at 30, 35, or 40 years of age, much of the disability at those ages is actually related to mental illness. That is one thing. So, And that's um, both nationally and also globally, there's a huge global burden of disability. When we look at actual death, so mortality, it's a little bit different there. Despite the fact that there's a lot of um, deaths that occur because of you know, other chronic medical conditions, we should take note that conditions like uh, uh, suicide, for example, which is often related to either substance use or uh, um, uh, mental illness, uh, is a top 10 cause of death in the United States. And again, it's disproportionately killing youth and young adults. So it's a, I would say mental illness is a huge slash leading cause of disability globally. And it's certainly killing people through suicide for one, but often people with mental illness as well, they don't look after their physical health or they find it harder to get access to care for physical health issues. So when we think about severe mental illness, we find that uh, these individuals, their life expectancy may be a couple of decades shorter than we would expect. So the presence of mental illness is almost uh, akin to someone being a chronic smoker, even if they don't smoke, because it's shortened life expectancy that much. Now, I know that I'm asking you a little bit of a loaded question here because there's a lot of different ways that people can be diagnosed with a mental illness. So can you take us through some of the ways that that is done as a psychiatrist and and what some of the, the challenges are in trying to deal with that? I mean, there's there's certain ways of diagnosing heart failure and there's a, a four class system that you can diagnose where someone is and, and put somebody in one of those classifications. How does one do it if there is a, a potential tendency or a, a, an indication or some report around a mental illness? How does a professional, number one, who do they see? And number two, how does a professional go about diagnosing them? Great question. So who do people see? Uh, actually, most people who have a mental health problem see nobody. That's probably the first thing to kind of report. Most people who have an issue don't actually get help. And those that do get help tend to get, there's many of them that tend to get suboptimal treatment, no matter who they see. The people who tend to see somebody tend to see uh, individuals like family physicians. Again, they're not specialized in mental illness. And they tend to focus on, you know, treating milder forms of mental illness uh, when they can. When we look at diagnosing many other medical conditions, we look at doing a test. So we look at perhaps, you know, in, in uh, diabetes, we do um, a blood tests, for example, looking at HbA1c and other parameters. And we do, um, we can do scans for other conditions and we have a lot of different tests we can do, and those tests will help us to diagnose. In mental illness, our ability to do objective tests is markedly reduced. In many cases, we don't have an objective test. For example, depression, we don't have a blood test that will diagnose depression. We don't have um, 
an imaging test that will definitively diagnose depression. So we really don't have those tests to go on. Part of the way that we diagnose uh, mental health condition is clinically, and part of it is through patient report. So what history does the patient present with? What are their complaints? What are their signs and symptoms? And then part of it is if we can get some collateral history from family members, in the case of children, from their school teachers, for example, from other clinicians who have worked with them. So a lot of it is subjective. And I think this is an area of opportunity that we have to um, really uh, change the game in terms of mental illness. Because how do we move from this subjective um, assessment of symptoms to a more quantitative and objective measure that we can use? Uh, A digital footprint, a digital signature, a digital phenotype, for example. We often, so people will often see um, their family physician, uh, maybe a psychologist, maybe a psychiatrist. And the book that we tend to use as a guidebook is called the DSM, the DSM-5 at the moment. It's basically a list of different criteria for different mental health conditions. So part of it is working through that. But I'd certainly find that the more experienced the clinician, the less um, they rely on every single checkbox in the DSM. And there are a variety of things that aren't mentioned in the DSM that I will certainly kind of use in my clinical practice to try and nuance out how best I think I can treat a patient. But it, it is very difficult. It is subjective. You know, people can certainly have multiple different conditions at the same time because the conditions that we diagnose, you know, Mother Nature never read the books that we write about mental illness. Uh, we have created these distinctive a categorical diagnosis that in you know when you look at the studies there's a lot of overlap between for example depression and anxiety is there in fact a type of depression where anxiety is integral to that that's not outlined in the DSM 5 as such but could that be a new condition that we can consider and that's why I think the digital approaches may help us to understand that in a much more kind of far reaching and novel way So you mentioned that in most cases, people with mental illnesses don't see anyone. What is the barrier? I mean, I imagine it's a combination of factors. Is it cost? Is it access? Is it awareness? Is it stigma? Well, I think it's, I think it's all those things. I think that, you know, there's definitely a stigma in taking that first step because of worry of, you know, how, how am I going to be perceived? How am I going to be judged? Some people don't have access to a healthcare and the access they have may be limited. So it's actually pretty hard in general to see a psychiatrist um, because there's just not that many psychiatrists that are around or they have long waiting lists, for example. So I think it's 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 multi-step. One is availability is definitely an issue. If you don't have insurance, there may be low availability or long waiting time. And there is a stigma component there as well. Uh, and remember, like whenever you go see someone, you have to travel, you have to take time off work and, or other resources. So it's, I think it's, it's, it's a multi-step. And even people who actually see somebody don't necessarily follow, follow up afterwards. So there's a loss of people who will return for a repeat appointment, um, who will actually take the medic- medications that are prescribed. There's a huge adherence issue in mental health. So it's multi-step. And a lot of the time, you know, we actually rely on the correctional system to actually provide mental health care to some of the most disadvantaged people because they end up having some um, interaction with the judicial system that makes them end up in a prison. 
in which case that becomes their de facto kind of source of mental health care. So you're passionate about technology and health, and obviously your focus as a psychiatrist on the mental health aspects. With all that we've just talked about in terms of the, the frequency of uh, these diagnoses and these problems happening in society with the cost, the physical cost and the financial cost uh, to society and to individuals and to families and relationships, how does technology factor into a solution? And I know there, there's so many different technologies that are being developed globally and being applied in all sorts of ways for, the, for physical health. But mm-hmm. I know that you're particularly excited. And I've seen you speak a couple of times about applications and mental health. Can you give us some insight into some of the most promising ones that you've, you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when we look at the challenges that we face in mental health, part of it is we, we have therapies that do work. So um, our medications for specific um, populations can be effective if they're used properly. Um, so the same with therapy. So, but we just don't have enough human providers. So the first thing I would say is what kind of technologies can we use to expand the reach of the human providers that we currently have to augment the care that they provide? Part of that may be to have a piece of technology that can enhance therapy. So for example, instead of a person seeing a therapist every week, they see a, they see a human therapist every two weeks or three weeks, and they have an interim um, computerized app or other piece of technology that can provide them with some um, manualized therapy in the interim period. Um, or we can have like a dashboard where if a mental health professionals working, looking after you know 50 people or 100 people in their clinic, they can have some quantitative kind of feedback coming back to them by monitoring someone's smartphone or monitoring someone's interaction with a piece of technology, uh, some kind of wearable, for example, to indicate to them who are the people that they need to see sooner and who are the people they can, you know, who are, who, see, who appear to be doing fine, appear to be taking their medicines or engaging with the intervention. So they can actually, in a much more adaptive way, um, decide on who gets to see them when. Because you have to appreciate oftentimes when we see a patient and we at the end of an appointment, we ask for a follow up time. We may pick two weeks or four weeks um, or two months. That is somewhat subjective. And that doesn't take into account a lot of the um, ups and downs that patient may face between appointments. So if we can collect some data um, between appointments and actually adaptively change when they're going to come back to clinic we may be able to um, create some, you know, between appointment triaging, essentially. So part of it is expanding reach. And the other part for me, which is very interesting, is um, can we actually redefine some of these conditions? And part of that is collecting large amounts of data and then being able to go back and say, hey, you know, we've got this diagnosis of depression, um, but what what are we actually seeing in people? Because... I don't think there's one depression. I think many of my colleagues would agree. There's not one depression. There's not one schizophrenia. There's probably a thousand different types and combinations of symptoms and experiences that lead to somebody being diagnosed with schizophrenia or uh, depression. It's a mix of genes and environment. But through the data, can we identify you know, a, a type of depression where particular disturbances in sleep are problematic and that person would particularly benefit from a couple of digital sleep interventions or a couple of different types of medications? And could we actually identify that digitally? Because oftentimes in clinic, when we ask someone, you know, do you have a problem with 
um, sleep? Are you sleeping late? Are you sleeping early? If you look at the DSM, it's not particularly nuanced when we consider how sleep relates to a diagnosis of depression. We consider increase in sleep or decrease in sleep, um, early morning waking, but we don't quantitatively really look at sleep in a nuanced way. So I think that using digital technologies to actually redefine some of these um, conditions or allow us to identify subsets of individuals with um, different symptom loads can really be helpful for us to redefine and rethink these big categorical diagnoses that we have. So we talked at the beginning of the program about mental health and and how that gets diagnosed and how people get treated and the different classifications, different conditions within that that very broad description of mental health. We've talked about technology. What I'd like to try to do is bring the two things together really clearly now and talk about some specific areas of mental health, mental illness, and how technology is being applied. So I have a list here in front of me of a few different conditions. I'd like to read them out and then have you give me some feedback about some of the most promising technologies and even if there are specific companies or approaches or programs that are underway that are really doing a great job in in treating these things. Can we do that? Yeah, absolutely. All right. The first one I've got is depression. So in the depression space, we have, um, and also in the bipolar space, we have a number of companies who are looking at um, trying to correlate depression with different markers on for example, passive or active data collection on smartphones. And historically, I think one of the first ones in this space was uh, Ginger IO, for example. So trying to line up different correlations of activities that we have on a smartphone through active and passive data capture to identify who is at risk of going into a depressive episode from their baseline. Or again, bipolar, um, the same would apply there. Anxiety and panic disorders. When we look at anxiety, this is a very rich space for virtual reality type technologies and augmented reality technologies because they can actually put you in a anxiety provoking um, or fear provoking uh, situation uh, digitally and give you the tools to help you get out of it. Things like very specific phobias like a spider phobia, for example, would be a, um, a way would be a condition that you could treat using virtual reality. And again, you won't necessarily need to have a, um, a clinician there. So this is a, this is a nice area for uh, immersive technologies to get involved. Eating disorders. Eating disorders. I think this is an area of uh, considerable need. There's not. I've not actually seen a lot of technology focus on eating disorders, but some of the stuff I've had the opportunity to see have, again, potentially been um, one, the kind of virtual uh, reality type technologies can like can you put can you put someone in a situation where they'll have the same visual stimulus coming in of you know um, some kind of cake or some kind of candy and then treating them to guiding them not to actually um, sorry guiding them to kind of avoid that food in a certain situation and I think when we look at some people who uh, binge eat for example there's a a line of thinking that says these are there's an addictive component to that, so that will also link up to alcoholism and other substances. Like, can you give them a trigger and teach them not to uh, fall for that trigger or to resist that trigger? And um, that could be useful. There's a couple of other wearables that I've seen when you do something that um, is quote unquote wrong or um, you don't want to do it, they can give you like a little shock. I think Pavlo- Pavlock was one of them. Um, 
So that would also make me think of if you want to kind of train yourself to avoid doing certain things like eating certain foods um, or binging or things like that, could you train a wearable to help guide you um, through that? How about schizophrenia? So schizophrenia is a interesting one. There's a couple of companies. It's like Pair Therapeutics, for example, have developed um, an app for um, people with schizophrenia. There's a lot of issues around medication adherence. Uh, schizophrenia is considered a severe mental illness. So in terms of enhancing or being able to monitor people's adherence with medications is going to be important there. So AI Cure, there's a company that does artificially intelligent medication monitoring. And also, I've seen some research recently on use of virtual reality and schizophrenia coming out from England. It wasn't schizophrenia per se. It was kind of people who have a lot of kind of delusional ideas, but delusions are a core symptom of schizophrenia, and helping them to address those in a virtual reality setting. Next one, suicide. So I guess with suicide, we have to look at different layers of approaches. So we can look at a population-based approach where we can use large data sets and machine learning to help us to identify what are the characteristics that will help us to identify people most at risk of committing suicide or attempting suicide. In that way, we can actually identify like the top 5% of people who are at risk and have a stratified way of understanding risk based on the input of large uh, data and using machine learning to analyze that. So we can use stratification there. On a much kind of more personal level is um, the use of apps to, there are some suicide apps that are being researched at the moment that will help identify things like triggers, for example, because there appears to be a different paths to someone um, becoming suicidal or to someone having a suicide attempt. Suicide is actually very nuanced because the because some people can have thoughts about suicide. But what does that really mean? Does that mean sometimes they feel like life isn't worth living or they have thoughts that I want to die? So it's, it's, it's a huge continuum. And then going from thoughts to having an intent and then from an intent to actually carrying out an act and how lethal is the act and um, you know, what are the other risk factors associated with that? So if you can have a piece of technology that helps to identify um, at the early stage, like, are you starting to have these thoughts and what can you do to address these and how can you get help? Um, there, are, there are a range. Of, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily go with any of them commercially, but there are a range that are being developed at the moment. Um, so we have this top-down approach. We have an um, apps-based approach. And there's also the concept of using a wearable system. So can we collect passive or active data from someone that um, will help us identify who's at risk? Um, this may be particularly useful when we consider um, if there's a key event that occurs. So for example, um, if we have somebody who's uh, pregnant and they deliver. So quite a few people after that will experience postpartum depression and depression is very much linked to the onset of um, uh, suicidal thoughts in severe cases. So can we monitor somebody specifically around a particular period of time, a particular event? Um, so I think there's a variety of different ways we can do it on a very personal level based around an event or on a top down kind of looking at a cohort of individuals. Uh, individuals who are in a hospital, individuals with chronic health issue, individuals who are seeking um, help from the Veterans Administration, ad administration after serving in the military. 
So you can pick a population and obtain a data set with data available and use machine learning to really uh, create an algorithm that helps you detect risk in future populations. And the last condition on the list is one that I know you're very familiar with in your role as chief medical officer for brain power. We haven't talked about that yet, but autism. How, how is technology being used uh, for the treatment of autism? Absolutely. So this is, this is my kind of key focus. And if we step back, people with autism and the autism community find themselves in a very, very difficult place. Why? It's because they're in the middle of the healthcare system, the social system, the educational system. And there's not a, um, there's not a coordinated approach by these different systems to address the needs of this community. That's abundantly clear. So if we have a person who is struggling with um, some of their social emotional skills, who's going to address that? Is it the therapist at their local therapy center? Is it their teacher who's a special needs teacher at their school? Is it somebody who's going to help them with vocational job training skills and help them prepare for an interview? This is a very fragmented and uncoordinated approach. And we have multiple different um specialists, all of whom are in high demand and are poorly accessible that are needed. So this community really needs technologies to help them to enhance their social skills, their emotional skills, their vocational skills, their academic skills. Um, some people with autism who are very impaired need a lot of intensive therapy, according to the literature. So we have a variety of different apps that are available on um, smartphones, on tablets, on computers that you know are, are aiming to help people communicate. Uh, the challenge has really been that a lot of these technologies immerse people in uh, a screen. They're screen-based technologies. So you're looking down at a smartphone, you're looking down at a tablet, and one of our approaches of brain power has been to say, look, we can develop technologies that you can use to coach yourselves through some of these important skills, but by using augmented reality and artificial intelligence based on smart glasses, you can keep your head up as opposed to looking down at your palms as a smartphone or a tablet or looking at a computer screen, you can keep your head up and you can still engage with the world around you, in particular, your family members or your therapist, because part of the interaction is interactive. So your head's up, your hands are free. Remember, smart glasses platforms, you have the ability to program them so that the person doesn't needs minimal to no hand interaction with the device. When your hands are free, you can collect a lot of information about how someone is using their hands. You can also have that person interact using nonverbal communication skills. You can have that person uh, carry out instructive tasks, whether they're learning to do a particular job, whether they're learning educational skills, whether they're playing games. So it's hands-free, which I believe is a, is a great advantage. Um, so the heads up, hands-free, and engage with the world around them. And the other thing is, you know, we have a lot of people who are going in and seeing therapists and, it, and it's difficult to see a therapist. People have to drive into particular centers. Some of the, these um, people with autism, children and adults with autism, sometimes don't like very noisy environments, um, stressful environments. Even the travel to some of these locations is difficult. So what's better than having an on-demand tool that you can use to coach yourself these important skills and you can use it in the privacy of your own home. 
these are these device the dev- the device the system that we're creating is basically it's like stabilizer wheels on a bike you're teaching yourself these important core skills like recognizing emotions recognizing how to control your frustration recognizing uh, the importance of uh, capturing this um, you know paying attention to people's faces capturing this uh, enormous amount of socially salient data that's coming at you from other people you can build these skills privately on demand in the comfort of your own home and uh, yeah and part of it is engaging continue to engage with your parents or your friends or your therapist because it's a it's a dyadic type of tool you're using it with somebody else Absolutely. I've seen the videos on the website for BrainPower. It's brain-power.com. I'll have the link on the show notes. So is the product available now? No, we're looking at uh, towards the latter half of uh, latter part of 2017. We're involved in clinical trials at the moment in um, Boston, where we're still refining and developing some aspects of the product. So you mentioned that you're doing some clinical trials there for that product. And we've mm-hmm. talked about a lot of different technologies here from apps to virtual reality and avatars and uh, artificial intelligence and all sorts of things. What are some of the standards that are out there for these technologies now? Because I imagine there are some instances like there are in physical health where some of these technologies can actually do more harm than good. So how are we mm-hmm. mitigating against that? And uh, you mentioned clinical trials. What else is being done from a regulatory standpoint or from a good practice standpoint? to make sure that uh, we're safeguarding and not doing any harm. Yeah, I think you raised a very important point. We have a lot of different technologies out there who um, have not had a lot of oversight in terms of their development. And some of them, quite frankly, are, are uh, I would say, are not beneficial, maybe even harmful. Um, I think it's an open space at the moment. It's, it still seems uh, that way. There's some people who will not really look to validate their product and the standards as well are very variable um there's i don't think there's a consistent um a set of standards that are being applied to these different technologies there's so many conditions there's so many different technologies and we're also going to see what kind of regulatory changes are going to happen in terms of um the fda for example i think just with the politics at the moment there's a lot of um shifting potentially that's going to going to happen but I think the oversight has actually been relatively poor for a lot of these technologies. I know some companies who are actually doing very robust trials, um, like Pair Therapeutics, for example. But a lot of these technologies are not um, being looked at in a robust way. And part of that also is that some of these technologies are not necessarily being targeted for a medical intervention. So you can have a technology that helps with calmness. And... You know, you often don't, people don't often seek um, any robust evidence to support that, right? Because enhancing calmness is not a medical indication. It's not uh, intervention for a medical reason. And uh, some technologies for education as well, it can be a bit subjective in terms of what happens. So I think there's a lot of different things happening. And there's not a lot of uh, standardized um, uh, ways of standardizing these different technologies. And the Technologies are so broad. I don't know who is going to take up that enormous kind of challenge. Well, it sounds even more complicated for for mental health, because as we talked about earlier in the program, there's such a wide range of how you go about diagnosing that in terms of the different symptoms and the, the codes and ways that you actually 
diagnose a mental illness. If there's challenges in the clinical practice, then there's certainly going to be challenges in the, the regulatory oversight of that. It's a, it's a fascinating area. We've obviously got a lot of work to do in this space. I'm really pleased that mental health is taking such a, a more prominent place in the discussions, but obviously there's so much more that needs to be done. One in five people, I think that's statistics, right? You'll correct me if I'm wrong. One in five people have a mental health condition. And you mentioned that most people don't get treatment. So what advice do you have for everyone out there who's listening, who think that they themselves or someone they know could have a mental illness? What should they do? I think the most important thing is recognizing that almost everyone has had an experience with mental illness. And what I mean by that is either themselves or somebody around them has had a challenge. So this is really something that's affecting every single one of us. Everyone listening here, everyone listening to your show right now has had a personal experience or an experience with someone that they know, and I can almost guarantee it because the statistics are such. And our challenge here is how do we flag it up? And one of the things they can do, they can quote the show. They can quote something they see on TV. And that's their segue into introducing it into a conversation. I think that, I think that has been helpful for a lot of people that I've spoken about. And once they've had that initial conversation or they've thought about that internally for themselves, mm -hmm. where should they go to seek professional help? So there is, uh, I mean, depending on the, the different healthcare systems, um, a lot of people who have a primary care physician, they can go to their um, GP um, or family physician for some advice. There are some different websites. A lot of uh, different mental health professionals actually advertise their services. Um, so you can have a look at resources such as uh, Psychology Today, for example. The local healthcare system normally has a list of different therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists that are available through that. So in the States, if you have insurance, check in with your insurance plan who's available. Just be mindful that some of those registries are a little bit out of date. So uh, persevere a little bit, um, a little bit with that. But there's definitely resources around you and there's increasing efforts to use telepsychiatry and different approaches to even connect people who are more remote to more rural. So there's definitely hope. There's definitely opportunity there. Um, you may, if you have therapy, you may not necessarily like the first person that you see. That does not mean that uh, all therapy is wrong for you. Um, some people, it takes two, three or four different therapists before they find someone that they feel is the right match for them. And that's totally fine happens in our friendships, happens in our life, can happen in therapy and in medicine as well. Well, thank you for those references. And I will make sure I include links to those resources directly in the show notes. So please do check out digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 21. And you can find links to some of those resources that our show was just mentioning. I have six questions that I'd like to ask every guest. Can I go through those quickly with you now? Sure. Fantastic. Sure, what is a saying, quote, or phrase that motivates you? So... I've got a lot of them. Um, it's actually one that I sometimes use myself that I kind of made up myself. And that was, there's a risk in not taking a risk. And I think the reason why I say that is I feel that in some branches of medicine, we're a little bit conservative or too conservative in terms of our approaches. And um, the important thing to note is that if we don't try to innovate, if we don't take some risks, our status quo, the status quo actually comes with so much of its own risk. If we're not happy where we are, people are going to suffer, be disabled, or even die because we don't push the limits on what's possible or try to innovate. So even the staying a baseline for me carries with it its own risk. It's not risk neutral, in my, in my opinion. What advice do you have for others working to innovate in healthcare? Two things. One is always take a close look at your mentors. 
I've had a lot of extraordinary mentors have helped me a great deal. But always look at the directions that they've gone. A lot of times, if you have an academic mentor or if you have a technological mentor, they will focus on the things that made them successful. That may not necessarily be the right fit for you. Always respect what your mentors say, analyze what they say, but also understand the perspective that they're coming from and see if that's the uh, see if that's the right fit for you. The second thing would be to really challenge even basic assumptions. And my example would be that when I first started um, working with brain power, I was traditionally taught that a lot of people with autism have a lot of sensory issues that stops them having, you know, would really decrease the chance of them even wearing smart glasses or anything like that. And a lot of my colleagues agreed that this would be extremely challenging. And I was tremendously surprised that that didn't happen, that most of the people that we saw were very happy to wear smart glasses, even though, you know, even their therapist or the person who's taking care of them for, you know, many years thought that it would be would be impossible. So part of it is challenge even the most basic underlying assumptions, because they may restrict you from getting to where you want to get to. Absolutely. That's really good advice. What book do you recommend to our listeners? Okay, so... <laughs> So I was actually thinking a little bit about this uh, question recently. And so historically, I've actually really liked reference books. So I I wasn't going to quote a reference book to you, but my current de facto kind of reference book is actually things like Wikipedia. It's almost like like picking your own adventure, but with information. So you kind of click on one link, you click on one link, you click on one link, and you kind of go through it. So... I actually use Wikipedia a lot. That's actually become, I don't read a lot of um, fiction, which is a bit of a failing on my part, but um, I actually like using Wikipedia a lot. And I kind of go down this whole line where I explore something. I'm a big fan of history, actually, because there's a lot of lessons in history that we often forget and are important. Um, So I actually really like reading things like Wikipedia and history through that. I know it might not be 100% accurate, but (laughs) that's actually the book. (laughs) If I say book, Encyclopedia. Well, that sort of leads into the next question, which is what tech, which is software, app, device, etc., do you use that you would want to live without? Is it Wikipedia? Uh, almost. Well, actually, it's my smartphone. And it sounds like such a obvious answer. Is there a particular app on your phone besides mail and you know, maps and Uber and things like that? That's the sort of standard go-to ones. Is there a particular app that you found that you really like and enjoy using? I use uh, Evernote on my phone, which I find quite cool. I use uh, Signal, which is a, a secure communication um, platform as well. And um, that's that's pretty much it. I basically have the normal kind of range of apps uh, on my phone. Evernote, the social media apps, Mail, Twitter, um, Signal, and a couple of different uh, news apps as well. Signal's so a new that- one for me. I'll have to take a look at that one. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's like a secure communication tool that a lot of people use. Is it like WhatsApp, but more secure? Yeah, it's very yeah, it's very similar to WhatsApp. Okay. Great. If I gave you a check for $5 million for you to invest in health technology today, what would you do with it? I think I would look at investing in companies that are trying to identify mental health issues in people who have got chronic medical issues. So I would uh, look at people that are using large data sets. And I would look at those people who have identified high utilizers of the healthcare services and those who are trying to find um, mental health issues in those. So it sounds a little bit boring in some ways compared to all the other really amazing, cool stuff that I could uh, 
uh, invest in. But I think that's using big data at the moment um, to really identify who needs help is probably the way I'd go. And last question is, we make a contribution to a charity in appreciation for your time on the show. What charity have you selected? And can you tell me a little bit about what they do? Sure. Uh, The charity is the Special Needs Network. It's a charity where I sit on the advisory board and it's uh, for children with autism or children with special needs who are in disadvantaged locations in the Los Angeles metropolitan area. So they do a lot of great work, fundraising, advocacy, um, literacy, uh, support services for a lot of um, disenfranchised communities in the Los Angeles uh, area. Well, excellent. So it's the Special Needs Network in LA. Thanks very much for supporting them. We will do the same and include a link on our website so other people can go and take a look at their work and hopefully support them as well. How can people keep in touch and follow your work? What's the best place to try to find you? Through social media would be the would be the best way to kind of keep up with me. Great. And your handle on Twitter is? It's uh, Vahabzadeh, V-A-H-A-B-Z-A-D-E-H-M-D. I really appreciate you taking uh, time to be a part of the show and to share your vision and your work. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say to the listeners before we end? No, just thank you very much for your time. It's uh, awesome to catch up with you. Well, there you have it. Dr. Arshia Bahabzada, Harvard University, Brain Power, Singularity University, and more. Remember to check out all the links of the things we discussed by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 21. While you're there, take a minute to subscribe to the podcast. You can do that by clicking on the icons for iTunes, Stitcher, and now even SoundCloud. So we just added that one. So please go check it out. In episode 22, we have Eugene Borahovich of Bear talking about innovation at Big Pharma and the Grants for Apps program. Future episodes feature Brian O'Connor of ECH Alliance, Daisy Robinson of Harvard talking about CRISPR-Cas9, Chaitanya Dahagam of IBM Watson Health, and Kate Newhouse of Dr. Care Anywhere. Don't miss out. Be sure to subscribe on the website and on your podcast app. Many thanks to our sponsor, Health TechX Europe. Check out their event on 20th of June, 2017 by visiting their website, healthtechxeurope.com. That's all for me. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, keep on innovating. <music>